If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Ryan McClanahan Show, episode 673. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Lots of great things going on there. i got a new class coming out this week. If you're catching this podcast at the end of July 2022, you're going to want this class, Copperheads. It's really, really good. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way there. Click on the super thanks button under these videos. If you're watching them on YouTube, throw a few pennies my way that way there. Uh, you can also click on the shop tab and get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. I'd like to hear what you want to hear. All right. Let's talk about the topic of the day. This is a listener-generated episode. Uh, A listener emailed me and said, Hey, look, you've talked a lot about judicial review, but can you explain what it is? And I'm going to answer that question with a couple of articles that came out uh, this over the weekend from Elena Kagan. If you don't know who Elena Kagan is, she is a Supreme Court justice, and she was appointed in 2010 by Barack Obama. She is one of the left leftist justices, progressive justices on the court. Generally now, you see a 6-3 split on some decisions. She's always in the three. And uh, she was asked in Montana about the future of the Supreme Court. So I'll get to that in a minute. But let's talk about this idea of judicial review. Now, Some of you may not really know what this is, and that's why I'm going to answer this, and some of you are probably well-versed in this, but judicial review is is the idea or the belief that the federal courts, namely the Supreme Court in particular, can review legislation and then declare it constitutional or unconstitutional. In other words, they get to decide what kind of legislation is constitutional and can move forward. Did the Congress overstep its bounds? Did the Congress pass legislation that was unconstitutional? This is the idea. They review legislation. Now, the way it's used today is not only do they review legislation from the federal government, but they also review legislation from state governments, right? So they review legislation from state legislatures and from the Congress, and they get to decide if it violates the Constitution or not. Now, this is a an interesting process, because a lot of people talk about judicial review. Well, it's not in the Constitution. If you look in Article 3 of the Constitution, there's nothing there that explicitly says the United States Supreme Court shall have this kind of power. You have to infer that power. And there was some discussion about this in Philadelphia. Generally, the states had already had this kind of process uh, in place in their state appellate court systems, believed judicial review was important and wanted it. Generally, the states that didn't have it didn't want it. So there was some mixed opinion on the future of judicial review in the United States. But of course, 
by the time the Constitution is ratified and then established, and the federal court system is established by the first Congress in 1789, we have uh, justices that believe in judicial review appointed to the federal bench. Now, in the ratification process, there were several states that, and ratifiers that talked about judicial review, and people might be surprised to hear that Patrick Henry in Virginia, who was against the Constitution, actually was reassured by the fact that we would have judicial review because he was worried about what would happen if the general government passed unconstitutional legislation, if the Congress passed an unconstitutional law and the president signed it. Well, who, how are we going to stop this kind of thing? And he was, he was told that uh, we will get the courts to block unconstitutional legislation. He said, I hope they do so. I hope they do it. Because, of course, there were others who believed that the state should get involved in the process. And this argument was actually made in the ratifying conventions. The states will be powerful enough to check it, meaning they would check unconstitutional federal legislation. Because, you see, that was a great concern. If the Congress and the president, the federal government, has uh, unlimited control of their own powers, they have. there's no review of their own powers, so who can stop that, right? It's... Uh, there, there's no check on these things. So there had to be something there. There had to be some backstop. There had to be some referee, some umpire to say, you have overstepped your bounds and you can't do that. But what happens if all three work in concert is the real question. You've got the Congress passing unconstitutional legislation. Let's take an issue like Obamacare. The Congress passes Obamacare. Well, clearly it's unconstitutional, but they do it anyways. The president, Barack Obama, signs it even though it's unconstitutional. Of course, it's his signature legislation, so uh, we're going to get that. Then it goes through the, through the court systems, and it finally gets to the Supreme Court. And what happens if the Supreme Court says, oh, well, there's this thing called the taxing power, and this is where John Roberts found it. You see, the interesting thing about Obamacare is it was going to go down in flames. I mean, this, this was going to happen, and I'll use this as an example of what you know Elena Kagan is talking about. Obamacare was going to go down in flames. It wasn't going to pass the sniff test. Everyone knew it was unconstitutional. There's no power for the general government to do any of this. So John Roberts, as Chief Justice, figured out a way to get this put in place. And he did so through the taxing power. Because you see, the basis of Obamacare is a mandate. right? That was Now the mandate has been gutted, so I'm not even certain how Obamacare even works anymore. But the idea was that because the general government can tax, it would it would essentially levy a tax. If you didn't have health care, you were going to pay two thousand dollars. Of course, if you and you had to get on one of these state exchanges and you had to get some kind. So if you didn't have health care, you'd have to pay a tax. That's how they found Obamacare to be constitutional because it was a tax. If you don't have health care, you pay a tax. So they're not saying what kind of health care you have to get. They're not saying you. But you have to have health care. So this is why now uh, your employer, if you have health insurance, or your employer will send out a notice that you have health care so that you can tell the general government, yes, I have health care, and so therefore I don't have to pay the tax. Now, again, because I've never had to deal with this, I don't know how this works outside of that. I haven't filed this too closely. I know that parts of Obamacare have been gutted. But so the Supreme Court upheld Obamacare. Now, why did they do this? Why did the Supreme Court decide to uphold Obamacare. Well, I think it's pretty clear. John Roberts, and this is a five to four decision, right? Five to four. John Roberts looked around and he put his, licked his finger and stuck it in the wind and said, you know what? 
I think that the popular opinion in America is moving in the direction of supporting Obamacare. People generally liked Obamacare. They liked the fact that uh, they could get insurance with no pre-existing conditions. They liked the fact that all the caps were removed from uh, health insurance. You know, it used to be if you had health insurance, which is really just coverage. There was a cap, right? So let's say you only had a million dollars of lifetime benefits. Once you got over that million dollars, well, then you were on your own. You had to pay everything out of pocket. So people liked the fact that no pre-existing conditions now were, were a problem, a barrier to getting health coverage. And there was no cap. You could get insurance, no matter how expensive it got, you stayed on a health plan. So these are some big things, and I think people generally like that idea. There were some regulations put in place to regulate the insurance industry and say you can't do these things. You can't deny people. You can't. So people liked it. So Robert stuck his finger in the wind and said, yeah, we're, people like this, so we're going to keep it in place because it's a generally likable law. And that's why Obamacare stuck. So the question is, what happens if that, I mean, this has always been the question. What happens if the Supreme Court upholds a clearly unconstitutional law, and yet, uh, and but what can you do about it? Well, that's where Jefferson would say, well, you got to get the states involved in this. Or you have all the lefties running around saying, now well, we just ignore the decision. Well, what's that called? That's called nullification, right? I mean, this is what it is, right? So the lefties are rediscovering nullification. Uh, but this has always been the question. What do you do when the court is in concert with the legislature and the executive in upholding clearly unconstitutional legislation? Well, the states have to do something about it. So to make a long story short, judicial review is this process by which the court will either invalidate or uphold legislation from the federal government. That was always, that was always there. The real catch, though, was the state's. And John Marshall and the Virginia Ratifying Convention actually promised that state legislation would not be held on, it would not be a federal negative of state law. This is what everyone worried about. And of course, not too long after becoming uh, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, he invalidated a, a state law. So that was always the issue, right? What, what could happen with the federal courts in relation to the states? Now, the very first time the Supreme Court actually upheld a federal law was in 1796. It's the Hilton v. United States case. We often hear that Marbury v. Madison was the first time that the Supreme Court used judicial review. It wasn't. It was the first time it invalidated a federal law, but it wasn't the first time it used judicial review. That was 1796, seven years before Marbury v. Madison. You had Hilton v. United States. This involved Alexander Hamilton. He appeared before the Supreme Court, uh, gave a three-hour defense of his carriage tax, and the Supreme Court upheld the tax. They said it wasn't a direct tax, so it didn't have to be apportioned among the states. So Hamilton's tax on carriages stood. Now, that was an interesting argument. You had a lot of Southerners who were concerned about this carriage tax. Most carriages were actually located in the South. This is interesting, the dynamics, the political dynamics of this. Most carriages were in the South. And you had people like Adonis Burke of South Carolina who was saying, well, look, if they can tax our carriages, they can tax anything. And of course, uh, he was a very large slave owner, and he was concerned about uh, the the ability of the general government to tax slaves. So this was this is the beginning, right? Seven, the Hamilton economic program and the resistance to it is the beginning of the end for the limited nature of the general government. And this is what Calhoun said in 1837. Hey, if the federal government 
can pass a protective tariff, which is unconstitutional, if they can pass uh, federally funded internal improvements, which are unconstitutional, if they can pass a bank, which is unconstitutional, if they can pass a carriage tax, you didn't say this, but if they could pass a carriage tax, if they could pass a, an embargo, they can do any of these things. Well, they can do anything they want. There's no, there's no control over the Congress. There's no, this, this Constitution is just a paper barrier. It doesn't really mean anything if people don't uphold it. If the legislators don't go in and say this thing is unconstitutional. In the Copperheads class, I go over a speech, and I'm not going to go into too much detail because I want you to take the class. There is a speech that was made uh, in, uh, in, in opposition to the Lincoln administration where the individual in question, and again, I'm, I'm going to hold all this stuff back, the individual in question said, uh, look, our job as congressmen, and this is the old English tradition, our job as congressmen is to get legislation and review it and debate whether it's constitutional or not. That's our job. When there is a, when there is a bill in question, this is what we're supposed to do. Now, we don't do that anymore, right? We don't do that at all. You know, there, there's, no, there's no question the general government uh, doesn't even debate the constitutionality of bills anymore. They just don't do it. Uh, and this is where Nancy Pelosi stands up and says, well, of course it's constitutional because we say it is, right? I mean, you have to read the bill to find out what's in the bill, right? You have to pass the bill to find out what's in the bill. Not read the bill, pass the bill to find out what's in the bill because they don't even go over it. There's not even a discussion about it. And this is what people like Thomas Massey and others have complained about. Well, you get this legislation, it's you know several thousand pages long, and you have like three hours to review it. You can't do that. You're, you're abrogating your responsibilities as a congressman uh, in this process because that's not really what Congress thinks it needs to do anymore. But here you have in the 1860s some real discussion about the Republicans were doing exactly what the Democrats are doing now. They were just ramming through legislation. Nobody could have time to debate. Nobody could have time to go over these things. If you did call it unconstitutional or you said these people are abusing power in the 1860s, you were called a, a traitor a Confederate sympathizer if you oppose the Lincoln administration. Well, now what do they do? Well, they call you all kinds of other names. If you oppose the the uh, the will of the Democrats or the will of the nationalists, well, you're called all kinds of names, right? So this is where all this stuff comes from. And that Roberts decision with Obamacare and upholding Obamacare is exactly what Elena Kagan is talking about. So let me go into that. Over the weekend, uh, Elena Kagan uh, gave a, uh, or I'm sorry, it was Thursday of last week, gave a little talk and then a Q&A. They asked her a question. And uh, this is in Reuters. So let me read the Reuters piece first. Uh, this is July 21st, 2022. U.S. Justice Elena Kagan sits on stage, right? So she's at a, a judicial conference in Big Sky, Montana on July 21st. So the, 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 um, the piece says, Liberal Justice Elena Kagan said on Thursday that it would be a dangerous thing for a democracy if the conservative majority U.S. Supreme Court loses the confidence of the American public. Now, it's, it's interesting how she goes about saying the conservative court would lose the confidence of the American public and what they should do to maintain the confidence of the American public. Now, see, the thing is, the court was supposed to be detached from all of that. The court was never supposed to be sticking their finger in the wind and deciding what the public wanted and then deciding 
uh, making decisions on the constitutionality of laws based on that. They were supposed to look at the Constitution. Did the Constitution say you can do it? If you can do it, then fine, it's constitutional. If you can't do it, then it's not. If it's not in the Constitution, it's unconstitutional. No matter what you want, no matter what you think the Congress should do in this particular case, the Supreme Court is there to uphold the Constitution. If you believe in judicial review, that's what it's there to do. It's not a policy arm. It's not there to make policy. It's not there to validate the popular opinion. It's not there to do any of that. It's there, if you believe in judicial review, to serve as a backstop for the Constitution. If Congress is abusing power, if the executive is abusing power, it's there to check those things. And you could actually make a case that in some instances, it's there to check unconstitutional powers by the states. If a state violates Article 1, Section 10, then the Supreme Court could step in and invalidate a state law if it did that. For example, um, you know, if it, uh, if it formed a confederation right, of states while it's still in the Union. Now, this is a whole other catch. But if it formed a confederation of states while they're still in the Union, well, that's illegal. That's unconstitutional. They can't do that. Okay? Uh, if, it, if it had anything but gold or silver as legal tender, well, it can't do that either. It can't emit paper currency. Okay? So those things are unconstitutional. So the Supreme Court could step in and say, you've just violated the Constitution that way. But the real catch, of course, was a federal negative of state law. And that's what the court has essentially done. And that's what Roe v. Wade was really all about. You see, Roe v. Wade was a bad decision because it was a policy decision. And there was nothing in the Constitution that gave the Supreme Court the ability to invalidate these state laws on this particular issue. It just didn't exist. It was a federal negative of state law, and there's nothing in the Constitution that prevented the states from regulating abortion. It just wasn't there. So the piece continues, speaking in public for the first time since the court's momentous ruling last month that overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion nationwide, Kagan stressed the importance of the judges staying in their proper roles as judges and not dictating public policy. Now, this is fresh, right? This is coming from a progressive that would be more than happy to dictate public policy from the court. In fact, that's exactly what she's saying the court should do without saying the court should do it and criticizing the conservative majority for essentially not doing it. Now, what do I mean by that? This is her quote. I'm not talking about any particular decision or even any particular series of decisions. But if over time the court loses all connection with the public, and with public sentiment, that's a dangerous thing for democracy, Kagan said at a judicial conference in Montana. If the court loses all connection with the public and with public sentiment, it's a dangerous thing for a democracy. So in other words, if the court stops being a policy arm because they've lost connection with the public sentiment, well, that's a dangerous thing. So she's saying the... Court shouldn't dictate public policy, but yet it should dictate public policy if the public sentiment's behind the public policy. You see, when you look at the landmark progressive decisions of the 20th century, they're all based on a decision by the court to dictate public policy. This is what the court did. Whether it's uh, all of the incorporation decisions, whether it's all the civil rights decisions, it's dictating public policy because you see what it's doing is knocking down state laws generally 
that were going against what the progressives on the court wanted. This is Brennan. This is Warren. This is all these people. This is what they were doing. This is Hugo Black. They're knocking down state laws. Or they're incorporating the Bill of Rights and they're doing this against the states because they think that the states are acting obnoxiously in abridging whatever policy preference they want. That's all Roe v. Wade was. It was a policy decision. It was the court writing legislation. So what she's complaining about is exactly what Elena Kagan would do. This is what she's worried about. She, she's blaming the conservatives for doing exactly what the progressives were doing for nearly half a century. And yet, this is dangerous for democracy. Well, I agree. If the, if, I actually agree with it. Don't dictate public policy. I agree. So what, what Dobbs' decision did is the court said, we're not going to dictate public policy in this anymore. The, the, the court's not going to do that. This can be up to the states. Or, I mean, we can talk about this with the legislature, but this can be up to the states. So the states can now determine uh, what's going to be public policy in their states. We're not dictating public policy. This is the funny thing. These people have no self-awareness. None. Zero. The left has no self-awareness. They're completely stupid. They really are stupid. And I, and I don't know any other way to say it. But when you, when you have a situation where they have no awareness that what they're doing is exactly what they're, what they're saying is bad is exactly what they've been doing for half a century, what else can you call them? The piece continues, The court, America's top judicial body, has a 6-3 conservative majority that has boldly asserted its power in the abortion ruling and other recent cases. It didn't assert its power. In fact, it said we don't have power. This is the crazy thing about this. The court said, we don't have power over this. The general government doesn't have power over this. And so it will go back to the states where it belongs. It didn't boldly assert its power, not in that decision. Now, I will say, and I've said it on this podcast, people say, you're so inconsistent, McClanahan. I said the New York pistol and rifle decision was a bad decision because it did assert its power as a policy arm of the general government, and it shouldn't do that. Now, the argument, of course, is, well, that power, that liberty is in the Constitution. The Second Amendment is right there. But the thing is, incorporation is a bad decision. This is what Clarence Thomas was talking about in his concurring opinion, the Dobbs decision. Hey, this is great. Let's go further. Let's go further and say the 14th Amendment shouldn't have done all the, that, that substantive due process shouldn't have done all these things, too. Now, of course, he also argues in the New York Pistol and Rifle decision, he wrote the majority opinion that the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment would make this possible. But you see, the 14th Amendment was never designed to do that. So it wasn't a Second Amendment decision. It was a 14th Amendment decision, a distortion of the 14th Amendment. So the court is still acting like the progressives on issues it wants to, and then not acting like the progressives, and the progressives are mad that it's not acting like the progressives all the time. You see, this is the real issue. The progressives don't like it because the court's only being selectively progressive. It needs to be progressive all the time or not. And so, you know, this, this is, and they don't like that decision, the New York pistol and rifle decision, because, of course, that is not public opinion. You see, the court said this, right, about Second Amendment. And, of course, conservatives are cheering that one. But it's a bad situation because Kagan is going to want the court to be a policy arm for this in the future. So who's to say that the left doesn't get control six to three and they go and invalidate all this stuff? This is why you should never put your faith in the Supreme Court. The state should do whatever they want anyways. 
She has another quote. Overall, the way the court retains its legitimacy and fosters public confidence is by acting like a court. It's by doing the kinds of things that do not seem to people political or partisan, added Kagan, who has served in the court since 2010. Uh, this is, again, this is very interesting, she would say that, because Elena Kagan doesn't really believe that. She doesn't think that she is acting partisan or political in writing the decisions or the dissents that she makes. They're openly partisan and political. And yet she's criticizing the conservative justice for being openly partisan and political. Again, lacking self-awareness. The left on the court doesn't have any self-awareness. The left generally doesn't have any self-awareness. This is the real problem. They're all discovering how problematic the Supreme Court is, how, how dangerous the Supreme Court really is. And uh, they're discovering this now. This is what conservatives have been saying since the 1980s. It's just what the conservatives did was interesting. They just said, all right, fine. You want the court to be a policy arm? We'll just take it over. And then we'll make it our policy arm. And then you won't have any recourse because you know what? If And I think conservatives made this, quote unquote, conservatives made this decision based on the real landscape of things. They knew that the left really couldn't get their agenda through in a majority of states. That it would be blocked, even in some leftist states like California. Now, California knocked down affirmative action. Even so, the people don't want leftism when it's presented to them by legislation. They don't want it. So what the what the conservatives figure out is we'll control this majority of the states, and if we can control the federal courts, we can make it to where we're going to have in in many states, the majority of states in the United States, it'll be normal. Right, we won't have leftists running everything. I think this is what they've done. Now, I, I know a lot of conservatives want to make you know, all these things nationwide. All fifty states go the way of the right, and I caution them on this because we—you don't know that the right is going to control these things forever. And you give the left this much power, you keep adding to the power. And again, this is what the Copperhead said. The Copperhead said it in the 1860s to the Republicans: "You keep doing this." And eventually, you're not going to be in power anymore. And then what happens to you? You'll get it. People will come for you too. Uh, this is this is what I would see happening. Uh, she said that there have been times in history when the court has been unconstrained and undisciplined, when justices really just attempted to basically enact their own policy or political or social preferences, and said the current justices should guard against that. Well, that's I, I agree, Justice Kagan. That, that has happened over time. And you know what it really happened the most? From the 1930s, end of the 1930s, and up through uh, when the left lost control of the court. That's when it really was the most. Uh, so really in the last half of the 20th century, you had a court that was unconstrained and undisciplined. And again, um, if you ask Kevin Goodsman this question, this was actually asked when we were on a, a podcast, Tom Woods Show. And um, he made a really great point about William Brennan, who knew that if he could just get five votes, they could do whatever they wanted. The court became a policy arm. It was like an extra legislative uh, uh, arm of the government. It could do whatever it wanted. Five votes controlled everything. And so this is what Elena Kagan really wants. She wants a court that can enact policy, but only policy that goes with the popular opinion. Kagan also said justices have to be consistent when implementing their judicial philosophies and cannot abandon that approach when it will not result in their preferred outcome. Again, I agree with that. But would she be willing to do that? I don't think so. 
Um, though I, I will say, the lefties, Sotomayor and Kagan, and now I guess Jackson, we haven't seen anything from her yet, but I will say this. Uh, the lefties tend to just believe in outright policymaking federal power. They're not going to be selective. Now, with the exception of the Second Amendment, uh, they would be selective with that one. But I, overall, I think that the lefties are a little more consistent in their, in their approach to federal power than the conservatives. Conservatives are going to be a little more selective with it. They're going to get it for their pet projects like the Second Amendment, um, which, of course, is opening the door to the lefties. They should just be saying, We're, our, our consistent position is the federal government has no power. If it has no power, we don't say it can do it. The 14th Amendment did not open the door to incorporation. That's... A stupid, that's a stupid interpretation of the 14th Amendment, not based on any historical reality. So if the conservative justices would do this, they'd be very consistent. It would knock down so much of what the federal government does, and it would be so mild that no one pays attention to it. It'd be, the government would become so mild that no one really pays attention to it, which is not what the federal government wants, which is why they keep doing what they do. Now, the Reuters piece... Uh, finishes with this. Opinion polls have shown a drop in public approval of the court in the wake of the abortion ruling, which capped its blockbuster term that ended last month. Well, who cares? I mean, reality, who really cares what the a public opinion of the court is? It's not, a, it's not an entity that even has to deal with public opinion. That's by design. The court is not there to stick its political finger in the wind, as I said, and decide oh, well, we're going to go in this direction because this is what public opinion wants. But this is what Elena Kagan thinks should happen. This is what John Roberts did with Obamacare. But it's not what the court should be doing. In other rulings, the court bolstered gun rights, expanded religious rights, and curbed the ability of President Joe Biden's administration to enact to issue broad regulations aimed at reducing carbon emissions from existing coal and gas-fired power plants. So the left is ballistic over all of those things. They, I would say they made the wrong decision with religious rights. That was a state issue. Of course, we're all looking at this as a First Amendment issue. It wasn't. They made the wrong decision with the New York pistol rifle decision because that's, again, incorporation. So those, both of those are incorporations. But they did the right thing with Biden and his EPA regulations because, well, that's unconstitutional. Same thing with Roe v. Wade. They did, the, they did it right twice and wrong twice. But we can't get anyone to be consistent on these things if you're really looking at it from the original Constitution. We don't, we don't have people on the court that are savvy enough to do this because they are all sticking their finger in the wind one way or another, whether it's their constituents or not, in deciding, deciding policy uh, based on political leanings. Kagan does it, but she's criticizing the right for doing it. If she was in power, if the leftists were in power, she wouldn't be saying this. The court's new term begins in October with Justice uh, Kajani Brown-Jackson, appointed by Biden to replace federal liberal Stephen Breyer, who retired last month. Among the cases it already has taken up for its next term are two that give its conservative bloc an opportunity to end college and university policies considering race and admissions to achieve more student diversity. The court has also taken up two major election cases that could have broad implications for the 2024 elections and beyond. Yeah, I mean, they're really worried about that. The state, uh, the, the sovereign state legislature doctrine and all these things, they're really concerned. The left is concerned about what the conservatives on the court are going to do. And this is why she's saying, well, we need to ensure that we follow the, I mean, the popular will on these things. We need to do this because she knows full well that a lot of what the left wanted 
they got because it was just an expansion of their power. I mean, it was policy. And that policy went against what the people of the United States really wanted at the time. That policy has now been codified. And so they're worried, the left is worried, all of their policy that they made through the bench is going to be undone by the bench, which they're saying is now uh, you know, going against uh, the, what the court should be doing. This is funny. It really is funny. The policy people, policy from the bench are now concerned about policy from the bench because that policy goes against what they wanted. So they want the policy that they wanted back and et cetera, et cetera. All right. So I hope that answered the question. And of course, going through this is fun too. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.